American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias Through Latino History and Culture program, a national endowment for the humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges project. Thank you very much, Virginia, for the wonderful introduction, and thank you to the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning, Donna and Penny, for inviting me to speak here today about a topic that is both professionally and personally close and important to me. For nearly the past decade, this issue of unaccompanied Latin American minors has been the focus of my research, and little did I know until about 15 years ago, part of my own history, which I will speak about in a minute. While I have been studying the migration of unaccompanied minors to New York City for nearly a decade now, I have more recently turned my focus to not only the Central American minors who have been steadily arriving for the past several years, but also I have a burgeoning interest in placing this recent migration into a historical context that spans nearly 100 years across North and Central America. I will be speaking about all of this in some way, shape, or form today. So for most of us, this past June was the first time that we were aware of the arrival of unaccompanied Latin American child and teenage migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border. While perhaps some, especially historians of immigration in New York City, knew of the unaccompanied minors who arrived through Ellis Island, few knew of those who had arrived across our southern border. Prompted by the disturbing photos of thousands of mostly Central American children and teens detained in overcrowded conditions in Texas, a media firestorm was born. For the next four weeks or so, people who had little knowledge of immigration, minors, or Central America would weigh in on, as experts on why this had happened and what we should do about the arrival of these children and teens. Words like explosion, crisis, Scare crowded the daily news feeds, and these minors became the scapegoats for everything from terrorism to Ebola, and even President Obama would cite their arrivals as a re reason for delaying an announcement on immigration reform, something I think is very cowardly, but whatever. Um, so for purposes of this talk, I would like for us to take a step back from this, from the now, and reframe this discussion, especially as we are teaching it to young people, as a phenomenon that is A, not new, but rather the latest chapter in a long neglected phenomenon of unaccompanied youth migration, and more specifically, unaccompanied Latin American youth migration. B, complex, and the result of multiple transnational, national, and local policies and actors. And lastly, I want you to think of the minors not as one big lump group, but as both possessing shared and divergent characteristics, not only in terms of their countries of origin and experiences and reasons for arrival, but also over time. Different unaccompanied youths have arrived at different points in this country's history. We have simply neglected and understated their mention. So, to bring attention to, this, to the historical antecedents of this latest wave of Latin American youth immigrants, I, like, I would like to begin by inserting myself into this discussion. So, 
I actually possess a nearly 100-year-old relationship to this topic. Unbeknownst to me, until the summer of 2000, my connection to accompanied minors would be made clear as my family was gearing up for another Martinez family reunion in <coughs> South Texas. For the reunion, my favorite uncle had completed a family history that would trace the history of my family from my paternal grandparents' arrival to South Texas until that point. Up until then, I had never inquired nor knew the history of my family, and here in a slim Kinko's bound volume, which I have with me, I carry it everywhere, um, my uncle had laid it all out for us. Prominent at the beginning of this family history was a story of a young girl who was the same age as many of the unaccompanied minors who are arriving today. Born in 1902 to campesinos, or agricultural workers, in El Molino, Guanajuato, Josefa Sermeño Castro was the only daughter in a family that included six other brothers. Too poor to attend school, she would learn how to become a good woman, skilled in the ways of the home. She would take care of her younger siblings and learn to cook and clean. Catching the eye of her older brother's friend, Baltasar, when she was only 12, by January 1915, as she approached her 13th birthday, she would be married. By the time she was 15, she would welcome their first child, Mago. And this is a copy um, that my uncle was able to obtain from uh, the church archives in Guanajuato of their marriage certificate. Unfortunately, however, this was the midpoint of the Mexican Revolution. With a scarcity of labor opportunities and rumors of yistas and military kidnapping uh, and forcibly, uh, forcibly takings of food, women, arms, and ammunitions and horses from regular campesinos, her husband, Baltasar, would make the decision that they would leave and go to El Norte, or the United States. As a result, not long after my grandmother reached her 16th birthday in 1918, she would hug her parents goodbye and leave her home to walk with Mago, wrapped in her reboso, or scarf, used to hold babies, over 400 miles with my grandfather and her 11-year-old brother, Victoriano. Exhausted by the time they arrived on the south bank of the Rio Bravo, known to us as the Rio Grande, they would encounter a chalan, or a hand-pulled ferry that they would ride across the river into Texas. The crossing fee was three cents per adult if they did not help pull, two cents if they did help pull the rope to get across. Baltasar would pay five cents altogether for them to cross. This young girl, who would become affectionately known as Mama Chepa to nearly 100 U.S.-born children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, finally arrived and settled 30 miles north of the Mexico-U.S. border to South Texas, almost 60 days after she had left her childhood home. Although my grandmother was accompanied by her husband, under today's definitions of unaccompanied migrants, and there we were just discussing this at our table, there are a couple different definitions floating around. One that defines unaccompanied status at the point of entry or at the U.S.-Mexico border in this case, and others in terms of possessing a parent or legal guardian in the United States. She would be included in today's discussions. 
Arriving to South Texas, young Josefa Sermeno Castro was, in many ways, really not much different than the many unaccompanied immigrant minors fleeing violence and poverty in Central America. Just as these children and teenagers have fled in fear of their lives, it, has taken all, it took all the courage my grandmother could muster in her small four foot nine frame to flee to El Norte unaware of what she and my grandfather would encounter or what would come to them or if she would ever see her mother, father, and siblings again, or even if she would arrive alive. But Josefa and other unaccompanied Mexican minors escaping the Mexican Revolution would not be the last, and probably were not the first, unaccompanied minors to arrive from Mexico or Latin America. And so I've been kind of mixing in my talk a little bit of talk, but also some um, pointing out some teaching tools that I think might be useful to use in the classroom. So I'm trying to make it a sort of a hybrid. So 30 years later, other young Mexicans were emigrating to the United States for work. And so we know about the Braceros. We know it began in 1942. It is primarily framed as an adult um, phenomenon. You had to be age 18 to enlist. But drawing from, or to enroll, but drawing from a primary search in this archive, which is a fantastic bilingual resource that is accessible to the public and your students can use, I found 15 oral histories of Mexican teenage minors who, just prior to and during the Bracero program, either immigrated to the United States to work and then returned back to Mexico to enroll into the Bracero program as adults, or simply lied about their ages to enlist into the Bracero program. For those who would end up in the program as minors, education verification was lax, some said, and they were simply absorbed into the program and sent to Norte to work. Take, for example, 14-year-old Alvaro Hernandez. Born in Julimes, Chihuahua in 1928, young Alvaro was the son of a campesino, a farmer, and a school teacher. Although this family, his family moved to the capital of Chihuahua and he was able to attend school until the sixth grade, when he, was when he was only 13, he was forced to return to his hometown to help his father work in the fields. Aware of the financial difficulties his family endured, young Alvaro would, would soon borrow 15 pesos and leave his home without telling his parents first migrating to Ciudad Juarez, and then lured by stories of labor opportunities that existed in El Otro Lado, on the other side, went to the United States, then crossing over the border in El Paso, Texas. Similar to Josefa, Alvaro describes crossing into El Paso over a modest, simple bridge on a chilly November day with a similarly aged friend, Francisco Oribe. At the immigration booth, he asked where there were the trucks that took boys to go pick cotton. The immigration officer simply pointed him towards 6th Street and Santa Fe, and they let them cross, and he crossed. When he arrived at that cross section of 6th Street and Santa Fe, he found a number of trucks waiting for laborers to take them to pick cotton. He and Francisco were picked to go with a man to Mesquite, New Mexico, where he would pick cotton until February of the following year. Returning back to his hometown, his pockets full of money, 
He could not resist returning the following year, in 1944, now as a 16-year-old. By 1946, when he was 18, he returned back to Chihuahua and sought work as a bracero. He would work for the next several years for a man named Neil Armstrong. When the astronaut Neil Armstrong would walk on the moon, he would wonder whether or not his boss had been the astronaut's father. Other teenagers, which I checked and it doesn't seem, I don't think that he is, um, because I looked at where Neil Armstrong was born and his father and compared, so I don't think that's the case, but who knows. Other teenagers forwent undocumented work as minors and simply tried their luck in enlisting straight into the Bracero program before the required 18 years of age. Ismael was only 17 when he became a Bracero. Attending only four years of schooling, Ismael worked from a very young age to help his siblings and his mama get ahead. He described recruiters for the Bracero program arriving to Aguascalientes and setting up an enlistment center in a downtown hotel. They did not ask for any papers or requirements, he said. The only requirement was knowing how to work in the fields. Having the voluntad, or the will to work hard, was the only prerequisite. Never asked to prove his age, he went ahead and enlisted at age 17. 17-year-old Duranguense, Antonio Garcia, was a bit more prepared yet deceitful in his early entry into the Bracero program. Mindful of the age requirements, he made sure to arrange that his Mexican military ID card stated that he had been born a year earlier. With an altered ID in tow, he was able to enlist at a contract center in Durango, Mexico, and soon he would be on his way to the cotton fields of South Texas to fulfill his first contract. Unlike his friends, he was unable to stomach the American food and with them, which were sandwiches and juice and milk and not at all reflective of the Mexican diet, and within a week of arriving fell so ill that he could not work. He would eventually return to Mexico where after a few months, as an 18-year-old, he would enlist as a bracero again. While these stories appear to be something that is considered part of Mexico's and the United States past, they are actually still very much part of both countries' presence. Although I didn't know this as I began my dissertation research several years ago, over time it, was, it had become abundantly clear that many similarities existed between these unaccompanied Mexican miners of past and more recent unaccompanied Mexican miners. Prompted by NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement, the departure of thousands of young Mexican miners has accelerated to the point, and now I'm talking about the 2000s and beyond, uh, had accelerated to the point of, as the headline states, and I'll translate this, 10 young Mexicans migrate a day, meaning 10 young Mexicans are attempting at least, so this is um, a newspaper here in New York, it covers Mexican news in the city, and this is um, talking specifically about Puebla, which has been the largest sending state of Mexico to New York City, and talks about how from Puebla, at least 10 young people under the age of 18 are leaving a day. Either in hopes of either reuniting with their parents, of working, or both. Facing inadequate educational opportunities and growing up in marginalized communities with few economic and labor opportunities, they simply could not imagine any other future, any future in their Mexican hometowns. 
Additionally, and my work talks a little bit about this, notions of family obligation motivate these youth migration. In absence of social institutions that enable economic dependency during childhood and faced with their families' severe financial need, many young Mexican children and teens begin working at early ages, first balancing work and school, but eventually, especially as the cost of attending school becomes too high, and Josie talked about the fee system, um, even up in the public schooling is supposed to be free. It is not. There are tons and tons of fees attached to even going to elementary school. Many young Mexican children and teens begin to work at early ages, first balancing work and school, but eventually, especially as the cost of attending school becomes too high, only working, first lo dropping out and only working, first locally and then eventually in the United States. Possessing a deep-rooted sense of familismo, or obligations to one's family, these young teens learn to contribute their labors and earnings to their families as young ages as a strategy for economic security, or try to have economic security. Additionally, growing up in communities where the effects of remittances are all around them, namely in the construction of fancy homes, next door to their own homes, and when other adult, my, uh, adult and teenage migrants return home in their purchases and modeling of fancy cars and clothes, the youth also want this for themselves and their families. Others, viewing no other way to achieve the dreams that they have for themselves in Mexico, including becoming business owners or even returning to school, see immigration as a way to reach those dreams and plan to emigrate here, like many Mexican immigrants, temporarily to return. These were the motivations for most of my study participants, or, or nearly 93 Mexicans who were planning to or had immigrated as teenage minors. Mostly male, but with a handful of females, these minors demonstrated extreme courage in leaving their parents behind to assume significant financial responsibilities in the unknown. With most hailing from southern Mexico, Puebla, Oaxaca, and Guerrero, these children of mostly subsistence farmers were the victims of the harshest impacts of NAFTA. I'm very thankful that Josie elaborated on NAFTA because I didn't really in this talk. Also of import is the fact that in spite of heart-stopping accounts of seemingly cat-and-mouse maneuvers with La Migra, or Border Patrol, like the first two groups of youth I spoke of, but unlike the last group uh, who I will speak about, these minors arrived without being apprehended, detained, or placed into deportation proceedings. And actually, they did talk a little, they, some of them did talk about being apprehended, but A, per the time, and B, per our policies with Mexico, when Mexican children are apprehended, they are repatriated within uh, 48 hours. So we have a different policy with Mexican children versus Central American children. So instead, and when that happened, they would just try again, and eventually would succeed. Instead, so these youth were able to arrive in New York City, where they mostly assumed labor positions alongside their adult undocumented counterparts. Entering into the New York City labor market, these miners working over 70 hours a week and earning approximately $400 a week, or about $5.55 an hour, have simply aged into undocumented adulthood. Not the more politically palatable dreamers, many, although earning better wages and working less, have not improved their, at this point, have not improved their educational and labor statuses and really have little chance at legalization. 
So now I want to talk a little bit about Central American migration. And I use this slide just to show what the numbers, so whereas Mexican miners were the majority group in crossing the border and being apprehended, we can see 2009 all the way to 2012. We begin to see in 2012 the increase in the numbers of Central Americans until fiscal year 2014 where their numbers surpassed those of Mexicans. So as seen here, since 2012, Central American minor migration has vastly outpaced Mexican minor migration. Now accounting for the majority of youth uh, immigrant arrivals, these youths have both endured different reasons for migration and faced different futures than the previously discussed populations. And so for the sake of time, I think I'm just checking my time. Um, I'm going to give a broad overview of this issue and then end with some ideas about how I think we can teach about all these populations, some resources to use, and also talk about a service project that a small group of my students are currently involved in. Unaccompanied Central American youths as young as three-year-olds have been arriving in increasing numbers since 2012 due to mostly three main reasons. And you can see here um, the reasons and proportions, right? So violence to escape unimaginable violence, which I'll talk about in a minute, to escape abject poverty, and to reunite with parents, many of whom they have not seen for many, many years. To explain how we have arrived at these conditions in this particular surge in youth migration, we must examine a combination of failed economic, immigration, and drug policies, although Josie could probably speak more better to this than I can, that have been implemented by both the United States and the affected Latin American countries. Violence. So to partially account for the increased violence in Central America, violence that has turned Honduras into the murder capital of the world and bypassing Iraq and other Middle Eastern countries, as well as being the largest sender of this wave of children and teenage migrants, many scholars point to the United States' immigration policies of the 1990s and 2000s that resulted in the mass deportations of both foreign-born and even some native-born 18th Street and Marasaba Trucha gang members. The deportation of tens of thousands of jobless, alienated young men to the Northern Triangle resulted in introducing a new level of sophistication and brutality to local gangs. Considered alongside the war on drugs in Mexico, whose unintended consequences have also included displacing drug production and pushing drug routes through Central America, what resulted was an expansion of Mexican drug cartels, like the Sinaloa cartel and like the Zetas that Josie mentioned, into Central America that could count on associates comprised of these Maras and these 18th Street gang members. Dependent on more and younger gang members who can act as foot soldiers and sicarios or assassins, MS-13 and MS-18 for short, are terrorizing children as young as seven years old forcing them to take drugs or to join their, and to join their gangs, these gangs have gone as far as to killing youths who refuse, in danger of forced entry into prostitution, rape, and even femicide, females, more and more of them, who are also possible targets of these groups, are joining the flows in increasing numbers of unaccompanied minors arriving from Central America. Accompanying increased violence has been increased economic insecurity. Modeled after NAFTA, which prompted much of the Mexican migration after 1994 and into the 2000s, CAFTA-DR, 
or the Central American Free Trade Agreement, Dominican Republic, has had similar consequences on poor campesino families who can no longer survive on sustenance farming. With its implementation in 2006, subsidies that once enabled families to survive on their crop production were stripped away and poverty was deepened. With few employment opportunities provided to replace these means of economic support, immigration has become the only means of survival. Lastly, children and teenagers are responding to the adult migration and are emigrating to reunite with their parents. As the U.S.-Mexico border has been increasingly militarized, adult parents who have not been able, who maybe in the past would have been able to return and engage in more circular migration, have not been able to return home due to both rising costs of border crossing, but also increased risks and danger. As a result, parents have been unable to return home to see their children. With children and teenagers left perpetually dreaming of a loving reunion, they grow desperate and simply set out in search of their parents, sometimes with their parents' assistance, but oftentimes without even telling them. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into detail about the actual journey, but it's very important, um, I think, especially in teaching it. Um, but just keep in mind that the youths are traveling over 1,500 miles and crossing not one, but two extremely dangerous border areas, the border between Mexico and Guatemala, and then the United States-Mexico border, just to arrive to the United States. Throughout the journey, these youth face unimaginable horrors, including the risk of kidnapping, rape, both females and males, extortion, forced entry into criminal organizations, maiming, especially for the youth who ride um, the train called La Bestia, which is known as the Beast, drowning, and even death due to homicide, accidents, and both hypo and hyperthermia. The fact that nearly 70,000 children and teenagers arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border alive last year is nothing short of a miracle. Many more will never arrive. So for those children and teenage migrants who do reach the U.S.-Mexico border, they may encounter one of three scenarios. One, like the Mexican youth in my original uh, dissertation project, they may slip by undetected um, and end up either reuniting with their family members or entering into the labor market. Two, they may be apprehended by the Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Patrol, which we know about, I'll talk about it in a little bit. Or they may die in the arid hot desert or brush just inside the United States. So in the, I, I just want to talk about this, little, this last scenario, and I don't do a lot of work about it, but I've found myself increasingly drawn to it um, because the area where um, more and more bodies are being found, many of whom are young people, is an area that my family would pass back and forth when we would travel to visit my grandmother. So in the, la in the last scenario, although there are no official counts yet, they're just emerging about the number of minor deaths, we know that children and teenage bodies have been found both in the Arizona desert as well as increasingly in South Texas brush. In fact, not far from where Josefa settled in 1918, in Brooks County, the bodies of several children and teenagers have been found in the past couple of years. One child was 11-year-old Gilberto Francisco Ramos Juarez. Found wearing angry bird jeans, this young Guatemalan boy had apparently gotten lost 
and was found merely one mile away in brush from the nearest home. Sorry. Okay. For the youth who are apprehended and detained, although now theoretically protected by the United States, they become nothing short of criminalized and may suffer abuses at the hands of law enforcement officials. In fact, in spite of a number of lawsuits and policies mandated as far back as the 1980s that call for gentler, kinder, age-differentiated treatment of minors, we still see a number of law enforcement actors engaging in blatant abuse of power and maltreatment of these youths. In June 2014, these violations resulted in an ACLU-filed administrative complaint against the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Patrol. Cited were blatant forms of abuse against minors who had been in their care, including sexual abuse, physical abuse, denial of medication, verbal abuse, placement with non-kin adults, denial of food, etc. It was a violation of placement with non-kin adults that sparked the first of several lawsuits against what was formerly INS to provide minors with age-appropriate services and care. With origins dating back to the 1980s, Current policies state that unaccompanied minors are supposed to spend the least amount of time under the custody of Department of Homeland Security and instead must be placed within 17 hours of apprehension into these less restrictive protective services of the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement. Here, minors await reunification, await reunification with family members or placement into foster care. There is a lot of catch up that seems to be going on, and very reactive policies and practices put into place, one of which has been this policy um, in which um, the Office of Refugee and Resettlement are only beginning to fingerprint individuals who, before releasing um, minors into their care, to assess their custodian identity and suitability. And this has only emerged in recent, um, in recent months because of incidences of sex traffickers coming to claim the kids. Throughout this entire time, from apprehension to after reunification with a guardian, kin or non-kin, minors are in removal proceedings for deportation. Not guaranteed legal counsel due to the civil nature of immigration law, children as young as three, year old, as three years old have appeared in court to face judges alone. Throughout this time, these children suffer significant anxiety, depression, and depression, etc., for fear of returning to dangerous situations and for fear that their legal status will not be resolved. Currently, organizations such as Catholic Charities and an organization that I work closely with, Safe Passage Project out of New York Law School, are in a mad dash to find sufficient amounts of pro bono attorneys to defend these minors with children's rights scholars stating that upwards of 50% of these minors' cases would result in some sort of legal relief, either asylum or SIG, otherwise known as special immigrant juvenile status, it's imperative that the children obtain adequate legal representation. So I actually stopped here to talk so that I could switch and kind of talk about, I think, some pedagogical strategies and assignments that I think might be useful, but I could talk endlessly about this population too. And I guess I'll just start. So I came up and I, I brought um, copies of both resources that I think I use in my classroom 
Um, and I think are really good to introduce your students to this topic. My Enrique's journey, and hopefully everyone in here has heard of Enrique's journey, um, and Sonia Nazario. I saw her speak a couple weeks ago. She's amazing. Um, and I think she does a very good job in telling the story of a young Honduran child's uh, journey to find his mother. And then I have a more academic article that is more of an overview of the literature mostly coming out of Mexico and Central America about unaccompanied migrants. These are several good reports that I think outline very well at different points of the children's journeys from why they're leaving their communities to the journey to arriving to the border then being entering into the immigration system several films, Which Way Home, and all of these were released, Enrique's Journey and Which Way Home were both released way before we knew about this crisis, and it's extremely relevant right now. Sin nombre, I'm a, I use sparingly because I'm not comfortable with the way, with the use that they use to um, talk about this journey, and one of the use, although one of the use is a member of Mara Sabatrucha who is trying to uh, escape the gang. Um, so I think it is important to focus on that kid, on that child. Um, and then some digital um, resources. Again, the Bracero Archive is a wonderful, especially if your students are Spanish speaking, a wonderful archive to use. And so let me talk a little bit about the Unaccompanied Latin American Minor Project. And then we can turn to assignments. So in 2012, I wrote a grant so that I could begin to uh, look at, and at first I thought it was going to be Mexican minors. If I had done the research on uh, Mexican youth who had not been apprehended and had managed to go undetected, I wanted to see how being apprehended and detained and put into removal proceedings would affect their senses of adulthood. I, I focus a lot on the life course or adolescence. I wrote the grant, got the grant, went to go talk to a couple of organizations who I know work with these youth and said, forget it, we don't see Mexican kids anymore, we see Central American kids. Uh, so I had to shift the focus of my project. The other thing that I found, though, as I started to prepare to do this project was that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, ORR, had increasingly clamped down on allowing anyone who is not a Fed or directly related to this issue to go into anywhere. Um, especially in June, forget about it. I mean, for, you couldn't even look in the direction of a shelter. So I had to redirect. And that's how I came across um, Safe Passage Project and the New York Law School. So Safe Passage Project is an organization led by a professor at uh, New York Law School, Lenny Benson, and they are only focused on getting pro bono legal representation for these kids. She was very generous. She allowed me to come and observe and volunteer. But we also came up with the idea of how do we involve our, my students. Her, her law school students are completely immersed in this. Um, but I was thinking about how we could involve my students. Um, I don't know if you know John Jay, it's a Hispanic serving institution um, where we are majority Dominican, but it's increasingly seen more Mexican, Ecuadorian, and even Central American kids, uh, students. And so I was able to get a little pot of money to start this unaccompanied Latin American minor project. I write, now I have six students who are working um, with safe, we are working with Safe Passage Project, and they provide academic and social support to their clients. 
What does that mean? They make phone calls. One of the big stories that emerged this week, and we also were talking about this table, or the uh, several school districts' denial of these kids, uh, denying them entry into their schools, making it very difficult. My students are also starting to screen the children uh, and teenagers and their parents to see whether or not they've been denied admission into schools, whether or not it's been made unnecessarily difficult to enroll, and probably Latino justice may start gearing up for a lawsuit. So I've been able to involve my students, and they, they're writing about it. They write memos about it, and so I'm also collecting that data to see how they are being transformed by working with this population. So I also came up with some assignments that I thought might be interesting to use with your students. And so I'll show you a clip of the last one. So the first level, I, I divide them into levels, and the first level of assignments I think are the pretty boring, straightforward, write, strictly writing, comparing contrasts, and research um, particular topics. Um, I think one of the, the easiest and most obvious exercises is asking your students to write about their own childhoods in relation to the childhoods of these unaccompanied minors. I do that with my students. I teach a um, a, a course called Growing Up Latino, and that's one of the first exercises they do. We're constantly doing that comparison across different Latino populations. Another exercise that I do is, again, we're, we're reading a variety of texts, so they can also compare the childhoods and adolescents of these unaccompanied minors to other Latino youth. I've used Pirito Mases, Down This Mean Streets, the, evolution, the Revolution of Evelyn Serrano, which is about a young girl who is becoming of age uh, during, just as the young lords are taking hold. So the students are also constantly comparing and contrasting the different Latino childhoods and adolescents that they're reading about. So I have a couple others there. The second level, I like to, I, I haven't done it in a while, and I did it um, more generally in an immigration course, to have the students more deeply understand the actors who are involved in these issues. So it's not just the unaccompanied minor, it's also the border patrol agent, it's also the anti-immigrant politician, the pro-immigrant politician, it is the mom, it is the smuggler. And so in groups, I have the students <coughs> research these particular actors in this phenomenon. And so for the second one, we did it. We did a really basic, they, the students would research using a whole bunch of different resources and then develop Facebook profiles. We developed a class Facebook page so all these characters could be friends with each other and I as an instructor could then review the different profiles. And in addition to that, had them write a narrative um, description of the particular actor and then talk about or write about this particular actor's position and relationship to this issue. And that could be done both in written form and verbal form. The last level is the most, probably the most difficult level, is the performance of this. So the next level that I have, and I scaffold the profiles is, now write a script about this phenomenon and each actor is going to play a role. Now, um, you can do that in two ways. One is just having a performance. And this, I ask the students to justify everything from the set that they have to their appearance as a character, um, how are they dressed, how are they speaking, et cetera, et cetera, to be really reflective about this. 
I did this once at another institution that had lots and lots of money. Um, and we were able to do it in Second Life. And I'm, I'm trying to find my way back to Second Life. So they didn't do it um, in terms of unaccompanied minors, but they did other immigration scenarios. This is actually focusing on the recruitment and the migration of Filipina <coughs> nurses in the United States. So my students built a set using images online that reflected this is supposed to be the Philippines in a rural area. This is supposed to be the modern United States. Um, this was actually a character that one of my students developed to represent an unaccompanied Mexican minor. He was interested in my work and he developed that for me. And then there's a the performance. So this, again, this is the one for transnational Filipino migration. I'll just show a little clip. We were able to get this to work. I was very excited to show you what that looks like. And so my students did it live during class time, but then we recorded it and saved it. So I can, I use it in different presentations. Our scene consists of a Filipino family forced to be separated by financial difficulties. The mother, Esmeralda, has been recruited to be a nurse in the United States, leaving her husband, Crisanto, and they develop avatars. We can talk a little bit more about that. In the Philippines with the rest of their children. Esmeralda will leave for the United States under assumption that her family will be reunited soon. In the Philippines, uh, scene one, in the Philippines, conversation between... Chris, I found a way to fix our financial troubles. What is it, honey? Dress like a nurse. Well, today at the hospital, a representative from the Commission on Graduates of Foreign Nursing Schools came to the hospital and explained how the United States, because of their deficit of nurses, recruits Filipino nurses to work in the United States. How dare you consider leaving me and the children here? You know I don't want to leave, but what choice do we have left? Your rice and corn crops haven't been growing because of the drought and we desperately need the money. We can hardly provide for Amihan and Bayani, and now that we have tequila too, we have to start thinking ahead. Three children and a shaky income is not a good combination. I don't know what else to do. Oh. Where would you be living in the U.S.? How long will you be gone? Well, I don't know yet. First, I have to get a visa screen certificate issued by the Commission on Graduates of Foreign Nursing Schools so that they know my skills are up to par with American nurses. And then I have to go to New York City to take another test. I have to pass this one in order to stay in the United States and get a job there. I'm hoping that I'll be able to find something in, the, in New York City. I don't know how long I'll be gone for, but I'm sure you'll be able to visit me. And I can come home to visit you and the kids. No, I don't need you to support the family. I can support us. I'm sure the drought will end soon. I'll take care of us. You don't need to do this. Yes, I do. The drought's not ending anytime soon, and we need to think about the children and their futures. Do we want them to live in poverty? Okay, I'm going to fast forward. We only have a, let's see if I can. And so they research the marital conflict that exists when you have. Um, family separation. They also research, okay, so also the conflict that arises when um, parents are separated from their what? children. Oh, here she is. So, why are you guys arguing? Mommy has to leave us to work in the United States. Mommy loves you very much, and I'm only doing this because I have to. We'll still talk on the phone, and you'll be able to visit me, and I'll come visit you. 
No, I don't understand. You don't love me anymore? Why are you leaving me? We can stop. Mommy loves you more than you'll ever know. I think you get a sense of this. Um, I love Second Life, and I'm trying to find my way back to it because I think it's a very useful tool for the for the students. You can really um, embed lots of research, and from again from a variety of sources, not just your usual research paper. They they only rely on books and other articles. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you.